Our sermon text for tonight. been going through a study in the Canons of Dort. Canons of Dort uh, corresponds to the 400th anniversary of the convening of the Synod of Dort. And uh, we come tonight to the last point. Perseverance of the saints. You could indeed call it preservation, uh, depending on how you describe it, certainly though perseverance is a wonderful way to describe it. John six, thirty-seven through 39. I'll read verses 35 through 40 of John chapter 6. Hear these words of our Lord, John six thirty-five through 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are your words you have given to us. We live and breathe off of them. So we pray that you, by your Spirit, would work mightily in these moments and that you would transform us. Uh, through your word and through your truth, all for Christ's sake, in his name, and by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. There are a couple of of fairly popular tests for truth to to examine as to whether or not a a set of of questions, even perhaps a a worldview, is true. There is the The coherence test and the the correspondence test. The correspondence test says, do all of the answers of a system, whether you're talking about a a worldview or, uh, for instance, the the tulip that we think about with Reformed theology, do all of those answers, uh, are they true in a way that corresponds to one another? And then the coherence test is, uh, are... Are those answers coherent when it comes to reality? The way we would answer that is, are they coherent when it comes to the word of God? Does your system of doctrine cohere to the way that the scriptures convey the same kinds of things? That's, uh, the correspondence test is really interesting, and we should be thinking about it tonight, because uh, TULIP and uh, Reformed Doctrine of Grace, one of the things that's so beautiful about it is that it, it fits together and it makes sense from beginning to end. And, and, and really, if you want to summarize it, 
distill it down to what it is most basically, it is that salvation is the work of God. Salvation is the work of God. Think about all the things we've talked about up until this point in Tulip, if you use that for a reference point. Total depravity, of course, we are unable, salvation, we are unable to do it ourselves. The election is eternal. Election is eternal. God has appointed a certain number of people to be those who would receive salvation. As human beings, we don't know who the elect are. That is up to God in the mind of God. He calls us to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. He calls us to be faithful taking the message of Christ to the world. But there is a certain number whom God has appointed to salvation. It's eternal. From beginning to end, we see that God has that set number. Christ's work on the cross is definite, right? It doesn't open up possibilities. It is definite. It achieves something. It accomplishes salvation. It accomplishes redemption for the elect, for those whom God has appointed. Last week, we talked about both human corruption and human conversion. Corruption and conversion. We can't get ourselves out of our corruption, out of our sinfulness. God's grace, though, is irresistible. We talked about Ephesians chapter 1. An interesting passage to think about in terms of human conversion because it says in Ephesians 1, God has placed Christ above all other powers, above all other rulers, all other authorities. And we said that that makes sense for Paul to do in the book of Ephesians because Ephesus was a city that was steeped in spiritual and occult practices. And what they were usually trying to determine was who's the most powerful deity? Who can show forth the most power? What Paul is saying is that Christ is above all other rulers, all other powers, all other authorities. And when that comes to bear on our own lives, we see that God's grace is irresistible. When the Spirit of God makes a dead heart live and brings it to life from the gospel, that heart will beat with the flame of Christ. It will be brought to life, and as we see tonight, as we finish up this study on the Synod of Dort, the Canons of Dort, we see that God will see that work through. All of those who have been given life in Christ will be sanctified, will be glorified, will be joined with their Lord forever. Perseverance, then, is the work of God. It's the work of God. And so that you think about those, those tests for truth. The correspondence test rings true tonight because we see uh, all of these points that we have been studying, the way that they correspond to one another fits together so perfectly because each one resounds with that same truth. Salvation is God's work. And in terms of coherence, well, we have gone to the word of God to show precisely where these kinds of doctrines might uh, be proven. And they are given to us in God's word, and so it is good that we study them. The perseverance, then, is uh, the work of God. Why has God seen fit to give us the doctrine of perseverance, perseverance of the saints? Well, it's a, a question for Christians Because of the fact that sin remains in us. Sin remains in us. When someone comes to faith in Christ, when someone is given life, when they are regenerated, they're not assumed up into heaven. 
but they remain below and they remain in the battle with the flesh. Really, that's where the the battle with the flesh begins and uh, they're entangled, they're corrupted still, their former manner of life, it's, it's still there, it creeps up even though sin no longer reigns over us, there are these struggles that sin uh, remains in us. And so the, the, the question of perseverance ends up being a question for that being one of the reasons, because we still struggle with sin. So we see in the canons, Article 1 of the fifth fifth head of doctrine it says this the regenerate are not entirely free from sins we read those people whom God according to his purpose calls into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord and regenerates by the Holy Spirit God also sets free from the dominion and slavery of sin though not entirely from the flesh and from the body of sin as long as they are in this life not entirely free from sin. And so this makes people wonder. Really hard questions and issues have come up in the history of the church. How do we, how do we think about the promises uh, that we will endure, the promises like we see tonight that Christ says, I will raise those who are given to me, I will raise them up on the last day. How do we think about that? And then yet there are passages that deal with those who fall away from the faith. There are passages that deal with the uh, guarding ourselves so that we do not lose our profession, uh, so that we do not go astray and lose our way. People have given all kinds of, of answers to these questions. It's really interesting that the, the Reformation doctrine really stands alone. And you could probably, I think a good case could be made that perseverance is the crown jewel of Reformed doctrine because it, it really nails home salvation as the work of God from beginning to end. Uh, Herman Bovink points out that Pelagians, Roman Catholics, Socinians, Remonstrants, Mennonites, Quakers, Methodists, even Lutherans have all taught that there is a possibility of completely losing the grace of salvation. That's quite a motley crew there, isn't it? You've got, you've got cults, You've got other denominations. Uh, All of them have taught the possibility of completely losing the grace of salvation. Uh, The Reformed doctrine stands alone. And it stands alone as we see it here tonight in the canons of Dort. Everything begins and it ends with God. And it's for that reason, here's another reason why it's good to assume that God has given us this doctrine. Another reason uh, for this that he has given us is that because uh, when we open it up, when we open up this doctrine of assurance, it's quite possibly the best source for our assurance as Christians. Assurance is a a struggle for for many Christians. Many Christians struggle with assurance. How do I know? How do I know that I am saved or that I will be saved or in the end I will will meet my Savior and and he, he will know me? And he will welcome you. Well, this doctrine is perhaps the best source for assurance. So uh, the Reformed doctrine of perseverance has been linked with assurance. We're going to talk about that uh, tonight as we think through these things together. So John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice how Jesus fills the second category with the first. 
All that the Father gives to me will be the ones who will come to me. If I were to say all of those who graduate from the sixth grade will proceed to the seventh grade, how many of those who graduated from the sixth grade would not proceed? None. They all would, right? All of those who graduate will proceed to the next grade. And Jesus affirms the same thing. He fills the second category with the first. All those given to me will come to me. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about eternal election. He's talking about those who have been given to him before the foundation of the world. Talking about the elect. And we see here how Jesus is is weaving things together. You talk about this correspondence test for truth. Do the answers of your system of doctrine, are they correspondingly true to one another? Jesus is weaving the doctrine of grace together in a way that makes sense, beginning with election. This is the work of God and is the work of God alone. All that the Father gives me will come to me. God has chosen outside of time, appointed those to eternal life. This, of course, happens through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel gives life to dead hearts, but it only happens for the elect. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus goes on to say this, and here's where uh, we need to camp out tonight as we consider the doctrine of perseverance. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus isn't then zeroing in to only talk about this individual or that individual, right? The, the, line of, uh, the logical line of progression is very clear. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. The key word there, of course, is never. Never. That's the question before us. Can someone lose the grace of salvation? Can someone be justified before God? Can someone be given union with Christ? Can someone be regenerated by the Spirit of God and then lose all of those Realities. Well, Jesus' logic could not be clearer. Beginning with election, ending with glorification, all of those elected to salvation will ultimately taste the blessing of glorification and eternity with God. God, of course, is the primary actor. There are those in this passage that come to Jesus, right? There is a, a coming to Jesus. Those who have been given will come to Jesus. But of course, we know that hidden behind that is God's work of election. So three things I want to think about with the doctrine of perseverance. That God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than our weaknesses. And God's grace is greater than our will. First, God's grace is greater than our sin. Article 3 in the canons God's preservation of those who are converted. It says this, Because of the remnants of sin dwelling in them, and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. We are not always faithful, but God is 
faithful. What is God faithful to? He's faithful to his program of salvation and redemption, which has been in motion from all eternity. Philippians 1 verse 6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Herbin Bovink, once again, he says this, in regeneration and faith, God grants a grace that as such bears an inadmissible character. He grants a life that is by nature eternal. He bestows the benefits of calling, justification, and glorification that are mutually and unbreakably interconnected. Mutually and unbreakably interconnected. Think about the the golden chain of redemption that people talk about in Romans 8. Those whom God called... He had, those whom he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. You have those wonderful uh, verbs there. Show how they're so connected and connected unbreakably. When God brings a, a dead heart to life, what he bestows is by nature eternal. It can't be revoked. It can't be taken away. God's grace, then, is greater than our corruption, is greater than our corruption, greater than our corrupted nature. And what he grants, he grants that which is eternal. God's grace is also greater than our weakness. God's grace is greater than our weakness. And by here I mean those, those small little besetting sins. When I say God's grace is greater than our sin, I mean that it's greater than our corruption, our corrupted nature. We t- thought about that last week. God's grace is greater than our weaknesses, uh, those things which continually, day by day, uh, beset us and perhaps worry us, worry us. So if you go to, to the scriptures, you see that there are these passages that either warn us in, in ways that make it sound like maybe you could lose your salvation, or perhaps even more disconcerting are, are those who are named that they've been in the church, they've been in fellowship, some of them even had served with Paul, and they leave the faith. We talked about Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul speaks of others who abandoned uh, his ministry, who abandoned Christ, who abandoned uh, the church. What do we make of all of this? One of the best texts to go to to think about this is first john chapter 2 says this they went out from us but they were not of us Did you get that i'll read it again they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us in space and time there will be people who, who come into contact uh, with those in the church. There will be those who join the church. Those who will have close fellowship uh, with others in the church. You may know people who profess Christ and who seem to have a sort of a vibrant, vital relationship with the Lord and seem to be walking with him. And then 10, 15, 20 years later, uh, they want nothing to do. With him. In space and time, there will be those that come into the church and, and then that leave. What's being worked out here is not God removing saving grace. This is not people who uh, were regenerated and justified and that gets taken away. But rather, it shows us the reality of false profession. 
There are those who falsely profess the faith. The parable of the sower is helpful for us here. Uh, We read in the parable of the sower that there are some who uh, lose faith by the tribulations and trials of this life. Right, The the things of this world uh, weigh them down too much and they cannot endure. From a human perspective, it's, it's as if they lose faith. But rather, what is being worked out is the fact that they never had that reality. Some lose faith because of the love of money and the concerns of the world. It's one reason why uh, you always want to pause. You know, sometimes people want to get excited when celebrity types are uh, claimed to be converted to Christianity. You know, whether it be Hollywood or the music industry or something else. Uh, even in, in my lifetime, I've seen many where it, it, it seems like it's so genuine, but then five, six, seven years go by and, and it seems like they're kind of back to the same sort of thing. The parable of the sower warns us that people will walk away because of the love of money, the concerns of the world. Ultimately, what happens is they do not have the eternal perspective. We talk about that. Your pastor likes to talk about that an awful lot. The eternal perspective that is needed to be able to, to have joy, and endurance in the faith, an eternal perspective. Sometimes the only way you can make sense out of things in life is by an eternal perspective. There are some things that will happen in this world for which you will have no answer. You need to look to the inheritance that's laid up for you uh, in heaven. In none of these examples, parable of the sower, uh, the, the examples that Paul gives, the examples you may be able to furnish in your own mind, in your own life, In none of these examples does anyone lose saving grace. In none of these examples does anyone lose union with Christ or justification if it has genuinely been possessed by them. Anyone who possesses those realities cannot lose them. And they will persevere and they will endure. It's wonderful to hear that, but I've found, as, as I've taught these doctrines to people, that there still is yet another problem that gets introduced on the back end of that. And, and, and here's kind of the way it goes. You talk to people who is tender, a tender-hearted believer who struggles with this question of uh, assurance and whether or not they have salvation or whether or not they might lose salvation. Here's kind of the way it goes. You show them and they affirm that election is true. Right? People say, election is true. Eternal election is true. The Bible is clear about it. All of those who have been appointed to eternal life before the foundations of the world will be saved. Secondly, they will admit all of those who experience life in Christ will be sanctified. Sin no longer reigns in their mortal body, and there will be some kind of fruit that they bear. The Bible doesn't give tons of specifics about the levels of fruit that they will bear, which I think is extremely helpful. And there's a reason why uh, there's, there's a muted nature of that conversation so that we're not uh, constantly falling over ourselves with worry. But the Bible does show that sanctification will follow from those who are made alive in Christ. So people will admit that. But then people will say, uh, tender-hearted believers may say this, at times it seems that sin still does reign in my mortal body. I keep having this problem. I can't seem to mortify this aspect of who I am. It continually gets into my life and, and I don't know what to do about it. It seems that sin still reigns over me. 
And so then what happens is some people will determine that what's going on is they must not be elect. Believing in Christ, believe the gospel, love him, want to serve him, still beset by various sins. They say, well, the the disconnect must be me. It must be that I am not elect. This is a huge problem for people who believe in Christ, people who believe the doctrines of grace, but doubt their salvation. They, they uh, come to, to determine that perhaps they are not elect. I wanted to assure you tonight that God's grace is greater than our weaknesses. A uh, Puritan book that hugely helpful in this area is A Bruised Reed. Uh, by Richard Sibbs, taken from a verse in Isaiah 42, of course, and then uh, quoted in Matthew chapter 16, I believe. Isaiah 42, uh, God is, is talking about instituting justice in the earth. Right? And he's, he's saying he's going to send his, his Savior, his Messiah, to make sure that the project of establishing justice will be, uh, will be finished. Even though you look around, you look into the world, and it doesn't seem like there's much justice. It doesn't seem like things are so wrong, things are so off. God promises to, to establish it in Isaiah 42. He says this, a bruised, wheat, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The question is, can we use uh, this verse for assurance? Really nice verse, isn't it? If we could apply that to our assurance, we could apply that to kind of our own, uh, our own wonderings about whether or not God will make sure to finish the work that he started in us. Because Isaiah 42 kind of has some other things in view. It kind of has that, that project of salvation, that worldwide sweep that God is going to bring about on, on the day of Jesus Christ. I think Isaiah 42, this verse, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, is absolutely a legitimate verse for us to go to and even apply to our own uh, pursuit of assurance. Because if nothing else, it, it tells us something about the character of God. It tells us something about who he is and what he does. That We read in Philippians 1, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it, to bring it to completion. The point is, if that, is that if true spiritual life in Christ is there, even if you are a bruised reed, even if you are a smoldering wick, just a little bit of smoke, just a spark is there, God will not destroy it. He will preserve. He starts jobs to finish them. God starts things to finish them. One of the things that most frustrates me about myself is that I'm really good at starting things. I can get really excited about something. Start this, start that. The worst is reading. I'm terrible with this. Really excited about starting a book. Push through. If I go through my bookshelf uh, from time to time, I will be so discouraged to find, uh, you know, a dozen, two dozen half-read books, right? You start something and you do not finish it. But God finishes what he starts. He finishes what he starts. He finishes the work that he starts. As you see that connected with the idea of the doctrine of grace, what a wonderful assurance that is. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not quench. Richard Sibbs says, a bruised reed is not so much somebody who's brought low by suffering. 
And I think most pastors would agree that, that those who suffer for the name of Christ, those who are, are, are made to go through tough times, it's often then that you see uh, the, their faith at its strongest, that they have nowhere to, to reach out but to Christ. And, and uh, God is our refuge and our strength. A bruised reed is, is someone who is brought low by the realization that it seems like sin still reigns over their mortal body. That it seems like that they don't have that kind of victory, that great victory that the word of God is often talking about. But if there is a spark from heaven, this is what you have to know about assurance. If there is a spark from heaven, God will not quench that little smoke or that tiny fire. What's important for you to, to consider about this is that Christ himself was given to be a minister unto sin, to be merciful towards those who need mercy. And will Christ fail in that which, in that which he was sent for, in that which he was sent to do? No, he will not. He will see to it to finish the work that he was given to do. Sib says this, we see how Christ bore with Thomas in his doubting. We see how he dealt with two disciples who went to Emmaus, who, who wavered as to whether he came to redeem Israel or not. He did not snuff out that little light in Peter. Peter denied him, but he denied not Peter. See, Christ came to give us grace and to show us mercy. And that is what he will do. He came to save us out of our corruption. And yet God has made it so that our, our corruption remains. Don't you think then that God is able to continue to save us even though we at times are weak? See, all of these things, election, definite atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, it's not given so that we would sit around those who are, who are uh, pursuing Christ, those who love him, those who believe the gospel. It's not given to us so that we would sit around and labor over the question of whether or not we are elect. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oftentimes, the, the way that God describes himself as a, as a loving father, as a physician, right? as, a, as a hen that gathers her chicks, right? he, he does that, he condescends to us in those ways because his mercy is so far beyond that. Right? And so in this life, if we see uh, physicians who are great at giving care and, and parents who are so filled with compassion and even things in the animal world, these pictures that God has given to us, do you think that there is more mercy in the stream than in the spring? Is there more mercy in the stream than in the spring? No, God has given us those pictures so that we would know and taste a little bit more about his mercy and his grace and his love for his people. His love for his people. A bruised reed he will not break. A, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Useful for us in the sermon series we'll be doing in the mornings here in Advent season. Think about the way, I want to read a quote from, from Sibs again. Think about the way that Jesus executes the offices of prophet and priest and king. He does all of them in a way that shows the magnificent mercy and grace that he has towards sinners. As a prophet, Sibs says, he came with blessing in his mouth. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. He invited those to come to him whose hearts suggested most exceptions against themselves. Come unto me all that labor and are heavy laden. How his heart yearned when he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. He never turned any back that came to him, though some went away of themselves. He came to die as a priest for his enemies. In the days of his flesh, he he dictated a form of prayer to his disciples. He put petitions to God into their mouths and his spirit to intercede in their hearts. He shed tears for those that shed his blood. And now he makes intercession in heaven for weak Christians, standing between them and God's anger. He is a meek king. He will admit mourners into his presence, a king of poor and afflicted persons. As he has beams of majesty, so he has a heart of mercy and compassion. He is the prince of peace. Why was he tempted? But that he might comfort them that are tempted. God's grace is greater than our weakness. Many of us doubt. We, we, we put the pieces of the puzzle of, of our lives together and we say, maybe I'm not elect. These doctrines were not given so that we would sit around and we would labor over that question if we are those who are continuously coming to Christ, continuously giving ourselves to him, repenting of our sins, resting in the gospel, and believing that Jesus Christ died for us. There will be those who leave of themselves. There will be those who leave of themselves. The next time you have those thoughts fly into your mind, challenge yourself with a question. Well, if you weren't elect, then you would be able to leave. So why don't you leave Christ? And if, the, if your heart uh, responds with never, never would I leave my Savior, there you have your answer. And there you can plant uh, to take great joy in your assurance. For he who began a work will complete it. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoldering wick he will not quench. God's grace is also greater than our will. God's grace is greater than our will. This really is, is, is kind of the crux of the matter. Right? Who is sovereign? Who is God? Who is in control? The answer to that question is whose will is reigning in that situation? Right? If a human will could cancel out the will of God, then who really is sovereign in that equation? Who is God in that equation? The bottom line for us and for our assurance, for our comfort, is that God's will is always determinative. If it were our will that could outflank God's or outmatch God's will, then nothing in the universe could be certain or determinative. We don't have the ability to possess a will that is greater than God's and have this universe still maintain itself in its stability. God is the one who reigns. God is king. He has been working out his decree from the beginning. He will continually work out his decree until the end. I wanted to read a couple more of the articles from the canons. What does... What do these realities do? It doesn't produce in us a a willingness to go out and then sin, right? It's kind of the same thing with election. 
if uh, you take great joy in the doctrine of election, does that mean you kind of go out and you say, oh, well, I'm elect, I can sort of live however I want, I can sin wherever I want, do what I No. It produces in you humility, joy, reverence, gratitude. Same kind of thing with perseverance. Article 13 says this, Neither does renewed confidence of persevering produce licentiousness or a disregard of piety in those who are recovered from backsliding. It renders them much more careful and solicitous to continue in the ways of the Lord which he has ordained, that they who walk therein may keep the assurance of persevering, lest on account of their abuse of his fatherly kindness, God should turn away his gracious countenance from them. And they, in consequence, thereof should fall into more grievous torments of conscience. It's a huge problem for Christians to, to wrestle over these questions. God gives us this truth so that he would drive home for us the glory of his grace, the glory of his sovereignty, that we would see it from beginning to end as his decision reigning and ruling in the question of salvation. Election is eternal Atonement is definite and secure. Grace is irresistible, ir- irresistible, and uh, perseverance. Perseverance is certain, and perseverance is the work of God. God's grace is greater than our weakness. It's greater than our sin. It's greater than our will. We rest in all of those things to remember that all of those who have been given to Christ will come to him, and all of those who come to him will never be cast out, but Jesus gives the promise, I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus never turns away those who come to him, who come to him, rest in him. Let him be your savior, your prophet, and your priest, and your king. If you continuously run to him, trust in him, and in him alone, uh, then you have your answer. You have your answer. Never leave your savior, and uh, you will have the great joy of being with the Lord forever. Perseverance, the work of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word. Pray that you would be honored and glorified in uh, the time that we spend together around your word. Sanctify us in it and through it. And uh, may our lives be transformed as uh, you continuously Fill our minds and and our hearts with these truths and orient our wills uh, to live for you always. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the great truth uh, that God 